There's so much simplicity that we miss in the Word of God. And this morning, I just want to deal with a very simple subject. But if you found your place in Ephesians chapter number 2, the Word of God said, And you hath he quickened. The word quickened means to make alive or to give life to. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you're saved, and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Man, what a bleak picture. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. That means to the Gentiles that was far off and to the Jews that was close at hand. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. 
Verse number 1 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And if the Lord will help me this morning, I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes on what does a dead man need. Genesis chapter number 1 verse number 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. God created mankind in his own image. God is a triune being. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now I realize there's a lot of people that like to argue about that doctrine of the Trinity and argue about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and they want that explained to them in such a way that they can understand it. But listen, folks, you're still trying to figure out how a brown cow can give white milk and eat green grass to do it and still make yellow butter and orange cheese. And you ain't going to get that figured out. You're not going to figure out the complexities of the Trinity of God. But I'm telling you, He is God the Father. And He is co-equally Jesus Christ the Son. And He is co-equally the Holy Spirit. And He works together as one. But He gave us a picture in the Old Testament in the tabernacle of the wilderness. And it gives us a picture of man who was created a body a soul and a spirit. Are you with me? A body, a soul, and a spirit. If you look at the picture that God gives of the tabernacle in the wilderness, if you saw Moses' tabernacle, 75 feet wide and 150 feet long, a 30-foot entrance, and inside that was the brazen altar and the brazen laver. Everyone, all of the children of Israel were welcome to come that far to bring their sacrifices. And that was the outer court that everybody could see. And that is a picture of our human flesh. But inside that court, there was a tabernacle proper. That tabernacle was 15 feet wide and 45 feet long and had a partition in the middle. On the inside, when you walked in, you saw the altar of incense directly ahead to the right. You saw the table of shoe bread, and on the left, you saw the golden candlestick. And the ministers of the sanctuary, the priests, went in and out. And the daily ministration of the tabernacle and did their duties in there. And that is a type of the soul of man. The inner part that everybody don't see. That everybody just don't have a part of what's going on in my soul and in my heart. There are a few of you that do. And there was a few that came into that place. But beyond that was the middle wall of partition, Brother Jesse. And behind that sacred veil was the Ark of the Covenant, was the mercy seat and the cherubims and the place where God came one time a year on the Day of Atonement and the priest would enter in with the blood of that little goat and he'd make a sacrifice and atonement for the sins of man. And that was the place where God came to fellowship with man. 
That's a type of the spirit of man. A man was made a triune being, a body, a soul, and a spirit. The body is a clay outward tabernacle, and it's a temporary dwelling place that houses and facilitates your never-dying human soul. You are not a body this morning that happens to have a soul. You are a soul that happens to have a body. Your soul will exist throughout all eternity. Listen to me this morning. Long after this earthly tabernacle is dissolved and returned to the dust from whence it came, your soul that makes you who and what you are will always and forevermore continue to exist. Either in the paradise and the presence of God or in a literal burning hell. This morning your body is going to go away to dust one day if the rapture doesn't take place soon. But your soul will continue to live forever and forever and forever. Genesis 2, 7 said, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. I'll give you three or four primary facets of your soul. The first one is your intellect. Or your mind, the ability to learn, the ability to reason, the capacity for knowledge and understanding. And that's part of what makes you who you are. Your personality is formed and molded and produced by a sum total of the things you've learned. What you've been taught, what you've been shown, the life experiences that you've had. And that's why every man, woman, boy, or girl that sits in this building today is uniquely different. You are an individual soul this morning housed in a temporary body. Your intellect is part of that soul, but your feelings and your emotions are part of that soul. Feelings and emotions allow mankind to respond either to external or to internal stimuli. It lets you experience love or hate or anger or frustration or joy or even depression. And your soul, the soul of man that's inside of you is made up of feelings and emotions. The soul of man is made up of a will. There are three primary wills. Number one is the will to live. Before any man, woman, or girl ever commits suicide, somehow Satan has to short circuit the natural will for you to live. Heard a story several years ago about a man who was off in the wilderness and fell a tree and the tree fell on his leg and that man literally chopped his leg off so he could crawl out and get to help before he died. There was such an intense will to live. Number two is the will to procreate. And that's what causes humankind to exist. And number three, mankind has an inherent will to worship. And all of this is part of your soul, your soulish man. And you have your heart, which is the central processing unit, or the hub, or the seat of decision through which the natural man, with all of his hopes and his dreams and his aspirations, governs his soul. 
governs his actions, governs his reactions, and guides unregenerate man to make him who and what he is. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. This morning multitudes, now you hang on here. I've talked about two out of the three parts of a triune being. The body and the soul. And this morning through your mind, multitudes have overwhelming intellectual knowledge of the things of God. Theological knowledge and understanding of great depths of mysteries and scriptural truths and theology. Doctrinal interpretation, multitudes this morning have impressive stories of uncontrolled emotional outbursts. Things they did in an altar and wept tears and had feelings of grief and feelings of remorse, but then had feelings of elation and joy. You can have all of those things this morning and die and fall straight into hell. Because everything I've talked about this morning is in the natural realm of the natural man, in your body and in your soul. But there's a third part of man. That third part of man is his spirit. And as the physical birth brings a child into a consciousness of a physical existence in a physical world, the new birth brings a new spiritual child into the consciousness of a spiritual world and a spiritual life. But Genesis chapter number 2 verse 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Brother Brandon, Adam ate that fruit and lived 700 years after that. What happened? His body didn't die. His soul didn't die. But his spirit man died in the garden that day. That's what I want to talk about this morning. You see, everyone sitting in this building today, you are alive in your body. You are alive in your soul. But precious, precious few Have life in your spirit, man. When Eve took the forbidden fruit, her eyes were opened to the knowledge of good and evil. And instantly at that moment, Eve plunged out of innocency into spiritual death. I'll talk to you about death for a minute. I want you to understand what took place that day in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve lived in innocency. Just like these little children live in innocency. They were not perfect. They were innocent. And as long as you're innocent, there is no judgment of God upon you for sin. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. And to a child that does not understand right from wrong. The word of God spoke of the Ninevites who did not know their left hand from their right. 
There is no condemnation to them. But when Eve took that fruit, the knowledge of good and evil allowed her to pass from innocency unto death. She died spiritually. A part of her and Adam had fellowship with God, had communed with God. Adam saw Eve that day in the garden partake of that fruit. And immediately something about her changed. There was something dead now on the inside. There was three things I'll tell you about a death. And the first one, separation. Immediately, Brother Jesse, there was a separation between her and Adam. A separation that day. And that separation has passed on. Because you know the story, Adam loved Eve so much that rather than to continue to live in the garden without her, Adam made a conscious, cognizant choice to take that fruit because he would rather die with her than live without her. Eve was in the transgression. She was deceived. Adam was a totally different story. Adam was a type and a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Eve did what she did, and Adam followed suit with her, it caused a separation between man and God. And the physical death this morning, as heart-wrenching and as difficult as the physical death is, it demonstrates the separation between God and man. You think this morning about some precious 70-year-old grandmother... Some snowy-haired little lady that for 50 years, every morning she's got up early and she's learned that snowy-haired grandpa she lives with and she's learned how he likes his oatmeal. And every morning she gets up and gets ready and she makes a little breakfast while he shaves and gets ready to start his day. And every day they go through the same routine, talk about the same things. Every problem she's ever had from the time she was a young girl, she shared the deepest secrets and the deepest recesses of her heart. That old man knows all her stories. He knows her fears. He knows what makes her tremble in the night. He's the one that's held her and cuddled her. He's the one she's put her cold feet against. And all of a sudden, one morning, he don't come out of the bathroom like he ought to. And she sees him slumped over and calls 911. And all of a sudden, the one she's lived with 50 years makes a trip to the ER. And she hears the sad news that he was dead on arrival. And then that snowy-haired grandmother that's lived with him all those years but watches her children and her grandchildren help her out through the uneven ground of her graveyard, follows a cold metal box to take the man she's loved all those years and plant him in the cold, hard ground. And there's a separation that comes with death. And it's a picture of how God longs to fellowship with his creation. But if you've never been regenerated by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God, there is a wall of partition between you and God 
and you cannot fellowship with God. Death brings a separation. But Jesus. Verse number 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. You know what Jesus did when the Lord Jesus Christ took His blood and sprinkled on the mercy seat? Down here on planet earth, the temple veil was rent from the top to the bottom. And Jesus Christ in his own flesh, a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross of Calvary, broke down the middle wall of partition. And that that used to be separated between me and God, Jesus Christ, bridged the gap and made a way I could get in and fellowship with God. Amen. Death brings a sting. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says the sting of death is sin. To those who placed a loved one in the coal metal box and followed their lifeless corpse to the cemetery, they're planted beneath the silent clods of this ground. The sting of death is the sobering reality that God's Word is true. Romans 5, 12 says, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Amen. When you follow your loved one to the grave, the sting of death is that realization God's word's true, buddy. Yes, and this life ain't all there is to it. There's something coming down the road. The consequences of sin is an eternal separation from God called the second death. <clears throat> the sting of death... Is the consequences of sin that eternally damn a never dying soul in the dark, unknown, unspeakable torments of the abyss. Let me mention to you in passing this morning, you can live a life of fantasy. Most people do, you know. You can live in a fantasy Hollywood world. You can live in a video game world. You can live in a fantasy world till the day you die. But if you die lost without God, death will jar you into the reality yes, sir. of hell. Amen. You can live in a fantasy world all you want to, but you'll die one day and God will wake you up. Amen. There is a sting to death. <laughs> but Jesus, verse number 16, says that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. The sting of death is sin. You know what causes the sting of death? It's having to face the consequences of your sin. But Jesus took the sting out of death. I'm not real super spiritual. I don't know a whole lot, Brother Jesse. But I remember being in a hospital room one time and the doctors didn't know what was wrong with me. And I'd be in pain and suddenly my blood pressure would drop and I'd go into a seizure. My eyes would roll back in my head and I'd pass out. My blood pressure would drop and the doctors couldn't do anything but look at me and wonder what was wrong. But I never will forget, I sent my wife to the house 
I had that very Bible right there in my arms and I laid in that hospital bed and I began to meditate on the Word of God and the Holy Ghost of God came by and began to visit with me and God put a peace in my soul that I do not have to worry about dying because Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, took the sting out of death and I ain't got to worry about it. My sin paid for, buddy. I'll never have to face it. Sure, I don't want to leave my wife. Sure, I don't want my family to grieve over me. I don't want my friends to feel bad about me. Don't you worry about me, buddy. My sin's paid for. There ain't no sting in my death no more. Jesus took care of that part. There's a stench to death. You ever wonder about why they send all those pretty flowers at a funeral? I mean, I've been in plenty of them, and the family looks at them, but those flowers fade away pretty quick, and they don't mean a whole lot, Brother Brandon. Those flowers have a very significant meaning in the world that we live in. Those flowers are for the purpose of covering the smell of death. If you've ever been anywhere where somebody died, and their lifeless corpse lay, it takes no time whatsoever for that corpse to begin to smell. And mankind will do everything he can to keep that corpse as long as he can. One of my best friends in Rollins, Wyoming, was the county coroner, and he was the mortician in Rollins, Wyoming. Brother Jesse, and many times I rode in that old coroner's vehicle with him. I smelled the smell of death. My friends talked to me about how that he takes that corpse and puts it on that cold, still embalming table enters into that artery in the neck and begins to pump fluid and opens up that artery in the leg and lets all those bodily fluids drain out through a little drain and goes down into the sewer. While he pumps in that embalming fluid and men will do anything they can to keep that corpse as long as they can. But that corpse stinks. There's a stench to death. What are you talking about, preacher? I'm talking about your sin. Stinks in the nostrils of God. The stench of that dead body is not offensive to another dead body. I remember hearing the story a while back of one of our northern cities. There was a crematorium, a place where they send bodies to to be cremated. They were having financial difficulties and about to go into bankruptcy. And the neighbors who lived adjacent to their warehouse began to complain, Brother Jesse. And they said there's an awful odor coming from the warehouse of the crematorium. The authorities went and they inspected that warehouse and they found in excess of 150 dead bodies stacked to the ceiling in that warehouse. Ricky, not one of them dead bodies called 911 to complain about the smell. Who did bother, Brother Wesley? Living folks. That's why it don't bother drunks to lay with drunks. That's why it don't bother whoremongers to run with whoremongers. That's why you better be careful who you run with. Because there's something about sin and the stench of sin makes me sick, Brother Jesse. I love sinners. I care about sinners. I care about their soul. But there's some things I just ain't got in common with the lost man. 
And that stench that's in the nostrils of a child of God that repulses you about other folks' sin, how much is that magnified to a three times holy God that is essentially holy and that cannot touch sin, cannot look upon sin? What do you do with a dead body? After three days, we try to get them in the ground. Because they're going to stink. You say, why would a loving God put somebody in hell? Brother Percy Ray explained that just as simple a terms as any man could ever listen to. Why don't you, when your loved one dies, why don't you tell the undertaker to just clean them up and take them home and prop them up in the living room? You'll keep them there. I'll tell you why. After a few days... That odor had so foul your house you couldn't stand to live in it. It don't matter how much you clean them up. After a few days you couldn't stand it. Why would a holy God put men in hell? Because if God allowed one sin to enter in the portals of heaven, it would no longer be heaven and He would no longer be God. He would cease to be God if he looked on your sin. But Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin that we might become the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I don't stink to God anymore because my sin was washed away in the blood of the Son of God. And when God looks on me, he smells the roses, Sharon. I'm telling you, that word of God's got the answer, buddy. It's Jesus. You say, I got a problem. Yeah, you got a problem, but Jesus is the answer. Death's got a stench. And that's why we bury men. What in the world does a dead man need? You know what religion says dead man needs? He needs a bath. He needs to clean up. You can bring a corpse in this building this morning and give him a bath. He's still a corpse. Some of you got washed in religion. You're still dead. They say he needs new clothes so he can cover up that decay and look better. You can put a nice suit of clothes on a corpse, Brother Jesse. He's still dead. You know, you know what dead folks think? Dead folks think you need a softer pillow in that casket. You know, they line that thing with satin. Make them feel better. That's what sinners won't do. They won't feel better. Let me tell you something. A corpse will never truly be comfortable. And a sinner will never truly be comfortable. There ain't nothing you can do to get comfortable in your sin. Well, he needs a new position. Maybe he needs to set upright. And you could take him and dump him out of that casket and prop him up against the wall and he's still dead. You know what folks do with religion? They clean up, they spruce up, they fix up, they stand up and they're still dead. That's how some of y'all are this morning. You've done everything you know to do and you're still dead. You know what a dead man needs? Dead man don't need a new suit of clothes. Dead man don't need a bath. Dead man needs life. I'm back to Jesus again. He said, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. That's the answer to this thing. Adam messed us up, but Jesus is the answer this morning. He's what fixes it. He's what takes the smell of death away. He's what takes the sting of death away. He's what takes the separation of death away. It's Jesus. Dead man can't get to him. I used to have a Calvinist, and I ain't got a Calvinistic bone in my body. I believe in a whosoever will salvation. But I had a lost Calvinist, so-called Baptist preacher. He used to torment me. All he wanted to do was argue scripture. I'd say, for God so loved the world. He'd say, what world? Well, we got the new world. We got the wide world of sports. We got the old world. What world are you talking about? He'd torment me. And he said, you're a dead dog. Dead dog laying in the middle of the road. You can stand on the edge of the road and whistle and holler and jump up and down and say, come here. Dead dog can't get up. I was a dead dog one day. So was you. But Jesus (laughs) came where I was. You remember when he went to Jairus' daughter and he went in, they laughed him to scorn. And the Lord Jesus put most of them out of the room. And the Lord Jesus bent over that little girl and said, Tell a thikumai, which is to say, damsel arise. That's what he told you, honey. He said, Get up. Yeah. Yeah, he did. <laughs> See, I can't do nothing for a dead dog in the road, but the Son of God can speak to a dead man and tell him to get up. How's he do that? The preaching of the Word of God. I'm telling you, the devil may not care how many songs the choir sings. He may not care how many prayers you pray or how many chapters you read. But I'm going to tell you, the devil is going to fight against the preaching of this book because it's the preaching of this Word that brings life to men. Word of God, the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know what the word inspiration means? Inspired. God breathed. God put life in the pages of these words. For the word of God is quick. That means alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints of the marrow and it's discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And this book gets in your heart. It gets to moving. That's why preaching is so important. That's why the devil hates my guts so bad. He wants me to quit preaching. God give me grace. I'm going to keep telling this story, keep telling this story, and keep telling this story. Because one day God raised me up. I was dead in trespasses and sins. I was tickled to death to lay around with a bunch of dead folks. The smell didn't bother me in the least little bit. But Jesus come by and made me alive one day. How do you know you're saved? Glad you asked. Because he resurrected my spirit. And on the inside today, I have a new man that did not used to be there, Miss Diane, but is there today. He can speak to me through that spirit man. Through that spirit man, he checks me and says, "Uh uh-uh, boy, that ain't right. Through that spirit, he checks me and says, yes, son, that's what I want you to do. Through his spirit, he fellowships with me and says, I'm pleased with you and I love you. And once in a while, he'll come by and 
and squeeze on me. And guess what? That man on the inside goes to wanting to get out. You know what bothers me with a lot of folks sitting in this building? I ain't never seen your new man try to get out. Brother Jesse, mine tries to get out all the time. You got something new inside of you, you're born in the Spirit of God, it won't get out. That's just exactly why, just, just as sure as I'm standing here today, that I've seen some of you, little old Miss Marcy, right over there, that, I believe it was on Wednesday night, got pulled up. Couldn't help it. There's, why was that? There's something on the inside of you that had never been alive before that wanted to get out and tell somebody, hey, I'm in here. <laughs> hey, the outside ain't all there is. There's something inside here. Hey, looky here. There's something different. God changed something about me. I still look the same. I still wear the same clothes. There's somebody new in here, Miss Donna. God ever changed you. God ever quickened your spirit, made you alive so you could fellowship with him and walk with him and be his friend? He did me, buddy. I could name a dozen folks in this building I've seen God get on you. But Miss Nita, that's about all. There's some of you right now. God's got on you in the last 10 minutes. I can tell by the look on your face. God's thrilled your soul. God spoke to you. He's jumped up down on the inside of you. Something on the inside of you doing double backflips. Some of you just looking at me like a calf looking at a new gate. You know why? Because on the inside this morning you're carrying a corpse. You're dead in trespasses and sins. And you cannot fellowship with God. Oh, you may feel an emotional tickle once in a while. You may feel some high-elated feeling that makes you feel good when somebody sings a song or when you see somebody else rejoice in the Lord. But you don't have that quickened spirit in you. Would you like that this morning? That quickening spirit comes by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Please God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Word of God, I'm going to tell you this, we're going to go to the house. We talk about resisting the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me give you an illustration here that may help you a little bit. Brother Jody, you're a pretty good-sized fellow. You work hard, you eat right, and you lay them blocks. One of these six or eight-year-old children couldn't resist you if you said, I want you to sit down and be quiet, you could make them. Or dig a ditch with their head. You can make them. You cannot resist the Holy Ghost of God in the fact that God can't make you do what He wants you to do. He can. But what does it mean to resist the Holy Spirit? Philip, or Stephen rather, Stephen stood up and preached, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. How do you do that? How did they resist the Holy Ghost? Now, Brother Jody, if you're big enough to make one of them children sit down, you could do that. But what if you sent them a message through one of the other little children and said, sit down? What if you wrote them a note and they was old enough to read? And in your note, you told them to sit down. And they wouldn't sit down. Then, in effect, they are resisting you. That's how men resist the Holy Spirit. They resist the servant that came to tell you the story. And they resist the Word says you're lost 
and you need to come to Jesus. See, a lot of folks are waiting on some kind of a elated emotional feeling. God's already speaking to you. God's already drawing you. God's already saying come. You know what God wants you to do? Believe His Word. God wants you to believe His servant. God wants you to believe what He says. God ain't going to come body slam you down here in this altar. No, sir. He wants you to believe Him. Have you ever yielded to the drawing of the Holy Ghost of God and let God birth you into the family and make a difference in your life? So different that you know without any shadow of a doubt you are so different that you could not possibly be the same person you used to be.